Music Biz 101 and more on Braver New Radio with Dr. Esteban Marconi. Marconi. Tom, let's not say anything the whole night. <laughs> oh, Dr. Esteban Marconi on Music Biz 101 and more. Thank you very much, my co-host. Yes, it's awesome to have you here tonight. Yes, you too. And this is uh, another year we're crack, uh, ch- chalking up. Yes, <laughs> we're cracking up. Right. At the end of the chalk, yes. This is the last live show of academic school year 2018-2019. Correct. Dr. Esteban. And, and that's we're ending it with a bang. A huge bang. A huge bang. Because Tom Hefter of Ticketmaster is with us in yes. the office. There we go, Ticketmaster. Yes. Hey He's in the box office. And the box office is open with Tommy the Heft. Yes. Yeah. Yes, thank you for having me for the last three weeks. This has been great. And we almost uh, told you don't come in. Yeah. <laughs> we almost said that this guy shouldn't be yeah, here. Yeah, just no more. Yes. No By the way, no, you are a grad great. of the program, and I want to mention that for the tenth time. That yeah, are. no, <laughs> and I, and I will mention it again. This program's awesome. That's right. Well, thank the, the, you. the music business. Yes, not program at William Patterson. Yeah, the not, show, not, not the radio show. No, <laughs> <laughs> no. Not right. So, uh, we should, so how are our ratings? Our ratings are stellar. That's you know, our ratings name. are going to go up. We should give. Um, I've mentioned a number of times the Promoter One Hundred and One podcast, mm-hmm. and they announced last week. Uh, actually, right before our show, they had made an announcement um, that they were going to stop their podcast. Oh, really? Yeah. So they have about, I don't know how many, maybe 10 or 15 episodes left. They have one every Monday and every Thursday night. Mm-hmm. And they're going to, I talked to Dan Steinberg, who runs it, and he said, this is, they're like going out like Joe DiMaggio. Uh-huh. They've, they've had enough. And are so they, they going to uh, plug us at all? I was going to ask him yeah, about that. About give a little love to Music Biz 101 That's right. or more. But, I um, move over to Music Biz yes, 101. exactly. And maybe he will. Yes. But, uh, but it's a great podcast, so sh- people should listen to that. And then also listen to our podcast, which is on the, the Spotify and the Instagram. No, I don't know where it is. Uh, the iTunes and the SoundCloud. And you should go to MusicBiz101WP.com, sign up for that newsletter. Follow us on the Instagram, the Twitter, the Facebook at MusicBiz101WP. Our guest tonight is Danny Goldberg, author of Serving the Servant. No. Remembering Kurt Cobain. Serving the Servant. Servving the Savant. Yes. The, serving the Servant. I don't think What is so. it? I have the book. S- serving the Servant. I don't know. Okay. <laughs> so I, oh, good. I almost, you you were thinking Serving the Savant? Yes. Which, it, which could have made sense because yes. Kurt Cobain was considered... Uh, a brilliant genius Absolutely. of everything. Um, we'll get into that well, in a moment. Him. Yeah. Why Why should we not ask him? I don't okay. know what would hold us back from that. Now let's, should we thank Ashley Weltner? Ashley Weltner. Yes. A product of German engineering, doing some German engineering for They're our radio show all tonight. all year with us. I don't think Ashley missed one show this How year. How could she take it? 
Yeah. And she's got one year left with us. And then uh, I already have an idea of who our uh, person will be the three years after that. Oh. Three years after that. So let's go. It's, it's great. Should we give thanks real quick? Sure. Let's give thanks to the folks at Van Dyne, Burn Wink, and White Hat Management with artists like Dave Matthews, Readers Down, St. Vincent, and Kiss is the only one place to go for your band's business management. Go to VB. CPA.com when you're ready. We should also give thanks. Yes. To Christine. Oi. <laughs> they, a wealth manager and president of Oi. They Wealth Management. Christine has helped many professionals all over the world manage their investments to plan after retirement. If you're looking for some guidance on how to plan for your retirement, if you have questions on anything from investments, portfolio management, to insurance and retirement planning, give Christine a call at Tom Hefter of Ticketmaster. Please repeat after me, 732. 732. 455. 455. 1510. 1510. Anybody, anybody, anybody can email her, Christine at com. Leave the last, last oil off for savings. I urge you to know that Managing Your Band, 6th edition, is out. The anniversary is nearly two years. Uh, it's almost, the anniversary is, wait, the anniversary, Remember? which of its coming out. Yes. <laughs> is two years ago almost. Right. June 6th. Yeah. I wonder but, if Danny has a copy. I'm sure Danny has five or six. He probably wore them all out in his CD player. From Harvey. I know Harvey has a bunch. Harvey Leeds buys a bunch because yes. we love Harvey Leeds of Live Nation. And Southside Johnny. Go see Southside Johnny. Mm -hmm. at, are you going to see Southside Johnny at yes, um, Outdoor Stage at uh, Stone. Stone Pony in Asbury? Yep. When is that? July? That is the Saturday of July 4th weekend. Happy birthday, America. Mm-hmm. William Patterson University's music business program. Tom has been ranked one of the best for the how many years in a row? Yes, thanks two for, thanks to Billboard thanks. Magazine. This is the uh, five and a half year mark of our radio show. Wow. And uh, we are in uh, the 200s now, number of episodes. Is Danny with us? No. Mr. Danny Goldberg on the air. How are you? Never right. better than this moment. Danny Goldberg on Music Biz 101 and more. Thank you, Danny. How are you? It's great, uh, great to have you. Good Professor good. David Kirkdale. Uh, Dr. Stavon Marconi is here, who you've met before when you visited the university. Yes, Steve uh, hey, Leeds brought you? you in. Good. You remember coming? I do. Very smart students, I remember. Yes, I, I yes, I do remember you saying that. universities, and, and you had the smartest uh, questions. <laughs> well, there we great. go. <laughs> well, I hope we do not disappoint you tonight. Well, we'll see. <laughs> There's no guarantee you won't leave disappointed. And we also have Tom Hefter from Ticketmaster, who is uh, with us, a grad of the program, and he's uh, does a lot of good things there, and he wants to say hello, Danny. Hi, Danny. How are you? Hey, how are you? Wonderful. So d before we start, Danny, I want you to know, so Tom mentioned this right before we went, uh, we started the show. Since the death of Kurt Cobain, Tom has not listened to Nirvana. Mm. No. Since. Mm. Why no. is that, Tom? I was in middle school. You know, uh, I, I graduated middle school and high school uh, and Nirvana. Like, that was the huge scene coming up there, the grunge scene. And he was an icon. And as soon as, you know, the news broke, it was devastating. And just, I could never listen to it again. I actually tried listening to Nevermind again today. And it was just like, wow, this is bringing me back. And, mm -hmm. you uh -huh. know, it's sad because he was such a great artist. And, uh -huh. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, and we're talking about this because Danny wrote the book "Serving the Servant, Remembering Kurt Cobain," and we're going to talk about that and many other things, Danny. So thank you again for being on the show. Appreciate it. Oh, I'm so happy to. So, what do you want to talk about? Well, why did it take you so long to get it together well, to write this? 
I don't know. Um, I've had a lot of other things to do. I've, I've had this my own management company the last 10 years. Uh, I uh, wrote a couple of other books that I cared about, and uh, I just uh, I just didn't uh, have it in me until I had it in me, you know. Part yeah. of it was uh, when that HBO show Montage of Heck came out, it seemed like every time anyone would mention Kurt, they'd reference that movie, and... Um, I respect it as a really earnest attempt at being an artistic film, but it's, it didn't paint a portrait of Kurt that resonated with me and conf- didn't conform with my memory of him. And then, you know, uh, I, just, I just obviously was aware of the calendar, and if I was going to do it, it seemed like I ought to do it in conjunction with the 25th anniversary of his passing. That's just mm-hmm. you know, the kind of thing easier to get attention to a book, and it gave me a deadline and a focus, and, you know, then I just kind of became obsessed with it. But... First 10 or 15 years after he died, I was in the same situation where I really couldn't listen to the music. But as, as the years went by, I, mm-hmm. I, I rediscovered who he was to me. And, and uh, you know, it's just, it just something I kind of suddenly decided I had to do. And then once you get a deal, you got to finish the book. <laughs> now, you mentioned in the book that there were some people that felt it was difficult to talk about him. Well, there were people that wouldn't talk to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, thank God a lot of people did. I had a good, uh, wonderful talk with Chris Novoselic, you know, in all these years. we I've met him so many times over the years since Nirvana about political stuff, but we never talked about Kurt until this. Thurston Moore, Sonic Youth, Earl, Eric Erlison of Hole, who's also one of Kurt's best friends, Courtney, a lot of the other people I work with. But then there were people that just for one reason or another didn't want to talk. I, I think for some people it's too painful. And then there were certain kind of camps back in the day that some of that still lingers. There are people that didn't like Courtney and people who did. I'm one of the ones that did, and I still do, but, you know, that certain people that uh, don't feel the same way. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think, you know, Buzz from the Melvins probably, you know, I, I would have loved to have talked to him. I, I admire him a lot. I made a Melvins record when I was at Atlanta. I signed him in Atlantic and had Kurt produce a, a record of them. But, you know, I think he's, you know... He's just got his own views of, of, of that relationship. So, you know, uh, uh, most people I wanted to talk to did, though, happily. Uh, you know, I spoke to around 40 people. It helped me refresh my own memory and just frame the portrait that I wanted to paint, which was, it's not a biography of Kurt. It's a memoir of the three and a half years when I knew him between about nine months before Nevermind came out when we started managing them till he died. Mm-hmm. Now, you said, uh, I think it was in the introduction, that you said about his illness was, quote, a force that I believe was beyond anyone's control. Was that sort of, we took it as we were discussing it before we went on the air, more or less that no one should feel that they didn't do enough or that there was really not much that could be done or... Well, obviously this is a question you could ask a lot of people uh, who have friends or relatives who killed themselves. You know, I think it's 65,000 in the United States last year, and none of them were rock stars that I know of, you know. But uh, so it's a, it's a really horrible aspect of human condition that's been around as long as anybody can remember. Mm-hmm. And I think the great psychiatrists and religious figures and doctors and philosophers you know, haven't uh, figured out how to stop it. You know, you can help certain individual people, and there are things you can try to do. With drug addiction, I'm a big, big believer in 12-step programs. So many people close to me have had their lives uh, saved 
by being involved with that, but Kurt mm-hmm. wasn't into it, you know. And uh, so I do think that there's a mystery to this, uh, self-destructiveness. And um, I, you know, I kind of was defining it because when I was talking to some people that cared about him, one, two people that I really respect enormously, Eric of Hull and Chris, their attitude is they're just still angry at him. Mm. You know, how could he f- do this? How could he, excuse my language, I, I hope I didn't screw up your station here. The live but, radio. <laughs> yeah, whoops. <laughs> I'm so sorry. But, you know, how could he do this? How could he, uh, uh, you know, his daughter and all these things. Mm. And I respect that emotion. It's totally valid. I just don't feel that. I mm. feel he died. He died of a mental illness that no one could fix. And uh, I'm so glad he was alive, and I, I tried to appreciate the 27 years of his life as much as I could. And, you know, obviously, I, it's a great loss to me, too. I never worked with an artist that important, that brilliant. He was incredibly kind to me. Uh, you know, I really love the guy. But, uh, you know, I'm not going to I'm, I'm not gonna ignore, you know, his life just because his death was, came so soon in mm-hmm. such an ugly way. Mm-hmm. Now, I think I read also that you said you, uh, at the memorial or whatever, the service, that you didn't write the speech down. That no, no, I didn't. I just, I had some notes which have long been lost, and <laughs> there's no recording of it that I know. So I, I just have a fragmentary memory of it, and then a couple of other people described pieces of it. So, you know, but it wasn't, you know, it was done, it was done, it, you know, the night before, Courtney planned everything, and... There's a lot going on, and, you know, I just I just made a few notes and did the best I could. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, you know, I remember I'd been at another funeral where someone read from the book of Ecclesiastes, you know, to everything there is a season. So that kind of, at this other funeral I was at, it gave me a kind of a sense of <sighs> perspective that I felt could work in any situation. So, you know, I, I, I just been impressed and moved by that. So I, I read that and then I just tried to talk about him and, you know, uh, did the best I could, you know, trying to think of who was there and who I wanted to speak to. Cause obviously there were different groups of people in his life, people who knew him early, which I didn't. And then there were people who got to know him after he kind of signed to Geffen and had his successful career, which was the part of his life that I was connected to. So, mm-hmm. I was trying to talk to those people because a lot of the other speakers spoke to the other groups, you know. Mm-hmm. Let's go back a bit because um, in, in the book you talk about you really started managing the band, you and John Silva and uh, Gold Mountain Entertainment, <clears throat> uh, just a few months before you guys signed with uh, DGC and Geffen. Uh, how, how did that even take place? Can you, I, I guess, talk about who you were managing, what what your company Sure. Uh, was representing leading up to that, and how did you even get in the same room as as Nirvana? Sure, I had um, I was around forty in 1990, and I I had been in the business since I was 19, and and I had finally over the previous six or seven years had a management company called Gold Mountain, Gold Mountain Entertainment, and uh, I wanted to be a manager for long before that, but it took me that long to kind of get enough uh, of a reputation to get good artists to let me do it. And by that time, we'd had some success, the most notable of which was Bonnie Raitt, who had just won four Grammys. Uh, and that was a huge thing to be part of. And also had the Olman Brothers Band, Ricky Lee Jones, and other, other good artists. But I knew there was this young generation of indie music, punk-influenced music, that I wasn't connected to. 
So, uh, you know, I hired uh, John Silva, who was in his early 20s, a very smart guy. He's incredibly successful today, manages the Foo Fighters and a lot of other artists. But at that time, he was early in his career, needed a place to work out of and a salary and everything like that. And, and you know, he had a couple of good artists, Red Cross and uh, House of Freaks, but we needed something that had more prestige in the, in the counterculture to... Uh, to make us sort of valid managers for the acts that we really wanted. And when Sonic Youth became available, we jumped at the chance, and, and they came with us. So Sonic Youth at that time was really so influential in the indie scene and great curators of music. Uh, so many artists that opened to Sonic Youth later went on to have successful careers. And, um, and, and uh, Thurston Moore and Kim Gordon fell in love with Nirvana. You know, they saw them the first time they came to New Jersey after one of their early singles came out. Put them on some shows. John saw them on the shows. And uh, I hated taking on new acts because I'm running a small business. And uh, you were talking about Harvey Leeds before. I'm sure he would agree with me on this. You know, new artists, it takes a few years before you make any money. It's not, sure. it's not the kind of thing that usually fits into a small business model. But uh, Thurston said to me, I know you don't usually want new acts, but this is the best band I've seen. And I trusted him so much that I said, great, if Thurston cares enough to tell me this, like I definitely want them. And then uh, I think they trusted us for the same reason. If, if Sonic Youth trusted us to be their managers, then Nirvana would be with us. So Dave, Chris, and uh, Kurt came to our office, which was in Los Angeles. They, they flew down from Seattle. Uh, Dave, I think he just joined the band about a month before. Uh, and, um, you know, we had a meeting, and I asked them what they wanted to do, and it was clear uh, Kurt wanted them to be on a major label, that he didn't want to stay on Sub Pop. That, that was, he made that clear right away. That was the first thing he said to me. And that, uh, you know, I, I, it, it seemed pretty obvious to me that since DGC, which was an imprint of Geffen Records, had done quite a good job for Sonic Youth and protected their integrity and respected every detail of how they wanted to present themselves and stuck with them, that they'd be the right place for Nirvana. And you know, within a week or two, that decision was made as well. So they, we committed to each other after the one meeting, and I think within a week or two, you know, uh, you know, we we made the decision that they would sign with DGC. Uh, Gary Gersh was the A and R guy at Geffen who uh, yeah. was uh, chasing them, and 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 he was he had the guy that had signed Sonic Youth, you know, and they put a staff together on the marketing side that was familiar with the indie record stores and the fanzines and you know, the college radio stations, you know, that were the connectors between that indie punk audience and, and the artists so that they could protect that part of Nirvana's image. And, uh, you know, and, and it was all about uh, rehearsal because Kurt wanted to rehearse before they went to the studio and they spent many, many months rehearsing the songs and never mind in a rehearsal studio in Van Nuys before they actually went to the studio. So getting the band in the first place, it was sort of Shep Gordon. I don't know if you read uh, Shep's book, uh, talks about guilt by association, you know, uh, by being near somebody famous, for example, it helps attract pe other people to that. And because you were able to get Sonic Youth, um, that was able to help you get, you know, that got you prestige. Oh, there's no question. Yeah. Sonic Youth was the John the Baptist at mm -hmm. Geffen Records with us and introducing them to uh, audiences in a lot of parts of the world. There's just no question about that. Sonic Youth played that role for Nirvana. And, uh, and uh, you know, I knew getting Sonic Youth would really help our reputation and access to a certain kind of artists that we wouldn't otherwise have access to, but I didn't know, you know, I was going to get something like as amazing as Nirvana. You know, that was, that was an amazing surprise. And you had mentioned Sonic Youth became available and you jumped. How did, what was your pitch to Sonic Youth? In order to get, I that. can't remember exactly. You know, they 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 signed to 
they made a decision to go with the major. They they were broke and they were sick of not getting paid by the indie labels and and Thurston to this day very proud of that decision. He said it really stabilized their personal lives and everything like that, and it didn't compromise their music or anything else about them in the slightest. Um, and they had a guy that they was going to be their manager, and then they had an argument with him because he wanted to uh, fire their merch person and change their agent, and they liked their merch person and their agent. They just wanted a manager to help them deal with the label. So I heard they were available. I think John told me, and we I got called Gary, you know, and said, you know, we wanted to meet. And the pitch was that I understood how to deal with record companies and the more established promoters and uh, that side of the business, that media, you know, MTV and all that, and that uh, and that John was, uh, you know, uh, totally connected to their music, their culture, the indie world, the world of seven inches and fanzines and. Uh, you know that, and and that uh, the, the team evidently appealed to them at that moment. They had to make a decision, and they said yes. So that was also something. It was one good meeting, and then we were their manager because they had to make a quick decision. Do you, and you had mentioned how you worked years before with Peter Grant, who had been the very famous and large manager of Led Zeppelin. Yeah. Uh, what did you learn from Peter Grant that helped you later on when you started managing artists? Well. Um, you know, I worked for him. I, I would. He was definitely my boss. He was a giant in the business, both physically and in terms of his importance in the business. He was a, over 300 pounds, had been a former professional wrestler, yeah. uh, and it was a very intimidating guy when he wanted to be. Um, he, um, But his main concept was um, the power of the artist and that all that mattered was what the artist wanted, that uh, that a manager's job was to work for the artist. You don't try to suck up to the record company or the concert promoter or the uh, the um, media. Uh, you know that you 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 work for the artist, and none of them would have anything without the artist. And um, and he he uh, uh, you know had Zeppelin, and they were the biggest band in the world. So he was able to change the economics of touring and the, the whole psychological relationship with the record company by dint of who he represented. But he also was the first manager that I know of who who did it, you know, and it changed kind of the power dynamic forever. I don't think there's a British manager since then that won't say that Peter Grant, you know, kind of paved the way for that mm -hmm. approach to management. So I just got the idea of what a manager's job was, and that, that was uh, you work for the artist. In his case, in particular, he had a particular um, sense of loyalty to Jimmy Page. And, you know, I just... Um, I just, uh, you know, uh, always, even to this day with the people I work for now, is just think of that attitude of what the job of the manager is. And, and, you know, so he was my mentor in terms of just as a role model showing that. He's certainly not the only one. You know, any great manager, I think, I think John Landau would say the same thing about how he works with, thinks about Bruce Springsteen or, you know, many, many other good managers. But for me, uh, to, to be exposed up close to Peter Grant in my early 20s imprinted on me like that's what a manager does. Mm -hmm. And Albert Grossman, too, you, you mentioned. Well, Grossman, I idolized. I didn't get to know him as well as I knew Peter, but one of my early jobs working for his publishing company, I got to meet him a couple of times. And, you know, he was this uh, mythical figure because he was Bob Dylan's manager at the time that that documentary, Don't Look Back, was mm -hmm. filmed. And, you know, to be in high school and see these scenes of this other guy in the room with Dylan, crack, mm. you know, cracking him up with jokes, but he's not a musician, because I certainly knew I was no musician. So I thought, how do I become that? How do I get that job? You know? <laughs> Yeah. So I, I hung around him a little bit, but Peter I worked for. I mean, he was my direct boss in a very small company. But Grossman was also uh, um, 
an innovator in terms of uh, uh, representing artists more proactively and got things for Dylan that you know previous managers hadn't gotten for artists. Mm-hmm. And then as uh, you mentioned, Peter Grant showed you that you're working for the artist as the manager. And you talk about that a lot in the book as you're going through the things that are going on with Nirvana and how you... Everyone, so I think you at one po- point even used the term rose-colored glasses. You know, you, you were trying to yeah. really do what they wanted. Were you ever, were you saying no and, and sometimes, and we just don't see that in the book about certain things? Well, um, I, I would, uh, you know, saying no is not an option if you want to continue managing an artist. <laughs> you can try to get them to change their mind. Right. And, uh, yeah, there were, there were a few times, uh, you know, one I describe in the book when I persuaded Kurt not to uh, add some uh, things to the liner notes of incesticide. Um, and um, not too many times, though, because he was really smart about the business, and his, his problems were all internal and personal. And, you know, I certainly agonized about his uh, attraction to heroin and uh, you know, things like that. But in terms of the business decisions, uh, he was a genius. He was one of those guys that really understood who he wanted to be and how to achieve it. And mostly it was a matter of just helping him accomplish his vision. You had mentioned, and this was a shocking admission by you in the book, how you had done heroin at one point when you were, I don't know, 19, 20 years old, something like I that. I was younger. I was 17. You were 17. Mm. Yeah. Was that hard to admit? And you no, put that on the pages? I've never made a secret of it. I mean, it's mm-hmm. easy when it was a long time ago. I, I, I uh, you know, uh, I would, by the grace of God, uh, got into therapy not long after that and, uh, and really, and, you know, didn't since then, and that's more than 50 years ago, haven't had, had any kind of a drug problem. I, you know, I was scared straight, as they say. I, I got arrested as a juvenile. I only spent five days in a juvenile hall, but that was five days too many as far as I was concerned. And so, you know, I, I've never hidden it. You know, I, I just didn't feel there's any point in hiding that kind of thing. Um, and it doesn't embarrass me. It was I was a kid, you know, and, you know, I'm glad I kind of lived to tell the tale. And I would, you know, but... It, it, that that that's just part of the truth, you know. I, I don't think you can ever go wrong being honest, you know, unless it's going to hurt somebody else. No, I, I, just as a reader and not knowing you, I, I thought it was very cool, you know, that that you admitted that, you know, and and yeah. obviously you're you're a mature person and you you know uh, just talk well, about what it I was trying, the point I was trying to make mm-hmm. was I didn't become a junkie. But not because I think I was a better person than the people that became junkies or that I had more self-control. Uh, it's because I just didn't like heroin that much. My brain chemistry didn't have that love affair with it the way people who become junkies uh, have. Mm-hmm. So I don't think, you know, that was, you know, I, I think just understanding everybody has their own uh, things too much and different, you know, lose our tempers or whatever, you know, but, but only some of them can kill you. But I don't. But when you're feeling that kind of compulsion, you know, it's not so easy uh, to deal with. I was lucky; I didn't have that compulsion. My compulsion was to trying to be cool. And once I realized that certain kinds of things I thought were cool could like ruin my life, I was like fine stopping them, you know. But I was lucky. That's the way my brain was constructed. I, I don't think it makes you know. You know I, I understand different people's brains are constructed different ways. 
Now, how did you and John Silva co-manage the band? How did you determine who was going to do, and even any other bands, but how did you guys determine who was going to do what? Well, in those days, I had a bigger company, and I had a number of different people I co-managed bands with. Ron Stone and I managed Bonnie Raitt and the Almonds together, for example, and there was a guy named Dave Bendett, and we managed Bela Fleck together, and you know, there were a lot of those kind of things going on in what, what I called Gold Mountain. Uh, in terms of John and myself, the initial idea was that, you know, he would do the day-to-day stuff and I'd be the guy that would kind of be called in for meetings with the record company or strategy or, you know, be the sort of older guy that, you know, kind of knew the business, problem solve and all that stuff. And that's definitely the way it worked, uh, you know, up until the point that uh, Kurt and Courtney fell in love. And, um, you know, uh, Courtney showed up uh, on the scene uh, of, of my life um, the same night. It was the first night she slept with Kurt, which was in Chicago. Uh, Nirvana did a show at a club called The Metro three or four weeks after Nevermind came out. The idea was the first time around the country to play the clubs that they'd played before to show that they weren't abandoning their old fans and, you know, like becoming corrupted psychologically by being on a major label. And so, uh, you know, by this time, you know, they could have sold out a place five times bigger. So it was a, it was a very exciting show. Five, you know, it held 500 people and, again, 5,000 could have come. Smells Like Teen Spirit had been out for like six weeks, you know, and it was the biggest rock song in the country. Um, and uh, Courtney came into the dressing room, introduced herself to me, and about 10 minutes later was sitting on Kurt's lap, and they both had this very happy expression on their face. Courtney later told me they'd been flirting over the, on and off over the last year or so, but that was the first night they were together, and then that was it. And I think within a week or two, there were a lot of people around the band that uh, didn't like her for one reason or another and didn't think that this relationship was real. It was just a passing thing. And, you know, there were a lot of disadvantages to being older. I didn't understand the culture, and I was of a different generation, and I was kind of a suit in that respect. But I recognized that he was in love with her in a way that other people didn't. And, uh, you know, was uh, we became friends at that point because I was kind of the only person in that circle he could talk to about this. And, um, you know, I shortly thereafter offered to manage Hole, which we then did. And I became kind of the day that then I became the Kurt person, you know, and John kind of dealt with a lot of the mechanics. I mean, he was still the hands-on day-to-day guy and a lot of stuff. But, but in terms of any decisions, any communications with Kurt, the, the majority of them or a lot of them, you know, ended up with, with me, you know, especially when there were like these, uh, you know, crisis type things. So that changed the dynamic of it, uh, you know, from what it was originally going to be. And was you taking on whole, was that, as much to to appease Kurt, not even a not it was hundred percent. Yeah, oh, okay. another example <laughs> right. of where I got very lucky yeah. by trusting somebody else who was smart. I'd never even listened to Hole's first indie record. <laughs> um, I just wanted to be supportive of him. That was completely what I was concerned about. He was in love with her, and one thing you know as a manager is if your client's in love with somebody, you better get along with them if you want to keep working with the client. So that's just management one hundred and one. And he felt, and he was so uh, vulnerable and, you know, earnest about the thing. I mean, he was just the greatest guy. You know, he was not a, he had his dark side, but it was all turned against himself. Like, he was quite nice to other people. He was a good listener. He was compassionate, you know. So, uh, you know, it was easy to feel very protective of him, you know. Um, And um, anyway, so, yeah. uh, But then I saw, and then I saw Courtney play an acoustic version of Doll Parts, 
in a BBC session, and I was flabbergasted. Again, I kind of had gotten involved with something for maybe not the right reason and, and was rewarded with proximity to somebody that was much more talented than I initially realized. Hey, hey Danny, I have a question. So one of the big things that I always remember growing up is you had the smell of like teen spirit, you know, you had the, like the, the, the grunginess. And then we find out that Nirvana is doing an MTV unplugged and which that turned out to be one of the absolute best unplugs ever. And just want to yeah. know, like, how did you, like you said, like before, it's like, you want to make sure you're keeping their core fans happy, but you just exposed the band to a brand new audience. I mean, I remember before that, 10,000 Maniacs was on there and Tony Bennett was on there and Clapton. then Clapton was on there and now you got Nirvana. Well, first of all, like every single other creative decision that was made by Nirvana, it was Kurt's decision. It was Kurt's idea. It was his vision. Uh, you know, the, again, the rest of us were there to facilitate. He really was that guy. He storyboarded the videos. He designed the album covers. You know, he played lead guitar and was the lead singer. He wrote the songs. He didn't co-write them, you know. Um, and um, so, you know, I think that he had uh, two things on his mind. One was, um, after Nevermind, they made two other records before Unplugged. They, he did a compilation of his early work called Incesticide that he really cared about. And it shows how he thought of himself as an artist at the age of 24. He's already, you know, anthologizing his early work. You know, it was, and then, and then In Utero was a very important record to the band. I think it's their, artistically, my favorite record of Nirvana's. And it was the follow-up, could, how could you follow up Nevermind? And, you know, he, again, he had the dual problem of wanting to reconnect with his punk fans and also have radio hits, and he did. Um, and then he, and then the video of Heart Shaped Box, which was the first single on, um, on In Utero, um, was was an extremely elaborately produced video. It ended up winning all the awards for video of the year, and um, and he just couldn't think of how to follow it. And he was, um, you know, he was tired. Uh, but at the same time, you know, he just creatively he just couldn't think of an idea for another video that could top that or equal that. And at the same time, um, you know, he didn't want to. Uh, leave a vacuum on MTV. He watched MTV. I mean, again, there were things about the business he didn't like. There were things about being a public figure he didn't like, but uh, he wanted to continue to occupy that spot. He worked very hard to, to, to make sure that, that he stayed successful, notwithstanding his misgivings about it. So, you know, Unplugged was a way of doing that. It extended his kind of the life of that in utero cycle on MTV. And he also loved, there was a side of him that loved acoustic instruments. You know, he loved this British band, the Raincoats, and like Jad Fair, and there were certain alternative artists that used acoustic instruments that he admired as much as some of the punk bands. He had brought a cellist, Laurie Golson, on tour for a lot of, some of the In Utero tour, and uh, the Meat Puppets had opened to uh, Nirvana uh, for a few weeks leading up to the Unplugged. It was in his mind to do something with them, as he did. And he just had this vision. He was a genius. And he conceptualized this Unplugged. It was completely different from any other Unplugged. They didn't do most of their hits. The, big, the formula then was to come on and do all your singles acoustically. He wouldn't do In Bloom or Smells Like Teen Spirit, you know, acoustically, or Heart J. Pox. He was, you know, he had these other songs that no one even knew he'd wanted to play, like the Bowie song, The Man Who Sold the World, and the Lead Belly song he ended it with. And he did these three Meats Puppet songs. And, and you know, I, I agree with you. I think it's a masterpiece. It's not just a live album. It's like a separate work of art, and it ended up, of course, being the last 
Nirvana album. But, um, you know, he just, uh, it was him. He just had this vision. He was very nervous about it because he didn't have all the rehearsal time he'd had on the previous albums, but he, uh, he pulled it off. Yeah, and, and the one thing, too, it's like visually, like with all the candles all over the place, just like the way they presented the artist was just... That was, again, him. He told, you know, Alex Coletti was uh, been quoted, you know, uh, you know, um, Kurt came up to him and said, here's what I want, candles, blah, blah, blah. And it was, a, it was all Kurt, you know. He, he was that guy. He really, whatever you saw, it came out of his brain. Mm. Did you ever, um, listening to you talk, uh, knowing, of course, you know, the role of a manager, did you ever come across your mind at all that you were getting too close or too in awe with his genius and you weren't going to be able to, manage correctly or you know because you hear so many stories of either managers um going off with the lead singer or et cetera, et cetera, and not being able to um just to control the aspects that they're supposed to control well i don't uh, feel that way uh, um you know i don't feel that way with people i work with now i mean i, I i've worked with steve earl for the last 18 years and i just look up to him i think he's incredible mm -hmm. you know we have our disagreements occasionally but not too often and i'm i, I you know, half the time when i disagree with him he's right but half the time i'm right <laughs> um but mostly i just feel honored to work for the guy you know i mean i i think we've developed also a friendship but i i do look up to him it's not it's, you know, and, uh, you know, that's just, that's the way I want to be with the people I uh, represent. I don't manage them. I manage their career relative to the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. You know, they're my boss. You know, that's the truth of the relationship. And, uh, you know, so I didn't, uh, you know, I wasn't worried about that. I was worried about my own security and you know during this time i took a record company job at atlantic records and later became president of atlantic right. uh because i didn't want to be completely dependent on a couple of artists as after i'd started a family you know had my first kid had been born another one was on the way and i then stayed i got i was involved it was written into my contract that i could be involved with nirvana which consisted basically of being there for kurt during some of the you know, famous problems that he encountered that are described in the book. Mm -hmm. So I adjusted it for my purpose, but no, I, I think, you know, these are adults, these are brilliant people, and, uh, you know, uh, I never was worried about being too much in awe. I was worried about disappointing him, and I was worried about his own self-destructiveness and my the limitations on my ability to, uh, you know, help him overcome it. Mm -hmm. What I thought showed how much you cared about Kurt was when you left Gold Mountain and you worked for Atlantic, you stated that you were going to continue that relationship with Kurt, but you were going to do it for free. Well, that wasn't me being altruistic. It was the only way to do it that, that was going to work in the business realm. You know, uh, I made a deal with Atlantic. They, they were paying me a lot of money. Uh, they didn't want me having a dual loyalty in terms of where my money was coming from. Uh, so it wasn't, uh, you know, they had bought out my half of the management company and so on. And, and so I had no further financial interest, but I didn't do that. You know, believe me, I would have loved to have gotten two paychecks. It just wasn't something I could negotiate. I was quite happy with the deal I did uh, make. And the reason to continue the relationship with Kurt was uh, 
was a no-brainer. It's not only that I cared about the guy, but it was he was so important in the rock and roll culture and the business that it was uh, it was a, a big a factor of uh, you know people would want to meet with me because I had a relationship with Kurt. You know, so it did have value to me. Uh, it just it wasn't a financial relationship at that point, but it was still an important professional relationship. Mm-hmm. And, and it's interesting because you had mentioned earlier it was your words when uh, uh, Peter Grant managed Led Zeppelin. You called them the biggest band in the world. And there was that period for a couple of years, two, three years, when Nirvana was arguably the biggest band of the world. And then you were managing them. Well, certainly for, for six months they were. Mm-hmm. You know, Pearl Jam became quite big pretty soon, and there were obviously bands in Europe that were very, very big. So a couple of people have uh, said I was hyping a little bit. But they were incredibly influential uh, around the world, not just in America. I mean, in England they were dominant, Germany, France, Japan. You know, there were bootleg cassettes in Saudi Arabia. It was a, a iconic global you know, rock rock band uh, very, very quickly. And they still are kind of on a list of famous rock bands. You know, if you list 10 or 12 bands that were most important in rock and roll, Nirvana is likely to be on the list. Yeah, well, yeah. They're, they're timeless. They're one of those bands that can be considered a timeless artist. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to think who, who you could, let's say it's 1993, who you could, okay, you threw Pearl Jam out there. Who else was as big and not much? Michael Bolton. Well, you know, there's different kinds of big, obviously, different kinds of music. You had, you know, Dr. Dre was walking onto the stage of the music business. You know, the NWA put out a record. Uh, The Chronic came out. Uh, You know, ultimately, that was probably a more influential cultural wave than, you know, grunge. Um, So that was certainly a very big deal. I wasn't directly part of it, but it's a fact that was going on. Uh, Pearl Jam became a gigantic band, and they've had an incredible career. They've sustained it with enormous intelligence, uh, you know, and uh, but for a minute they were, you know, they were definitely uh, just mathematically selling more records than Nirvana by the follow-up records to Nevermind. Uh, And, uh, you know, and the, uh, you know, Soundgarden became an important band, obviously Alice in Chains. You know, Seattle produced mm-hmm. four platinum acts. You know, three of them came within a year after after Nirvana. So um, Nirvana had status because Kurt was unique. You know, the same way in the previous generation, Neil Young's unique or you know David Bowie was unique. There's certainly these artists that have a influence beyond just what you can measure in terms of record sales. Jim Morrison, another one who died at 27. Yeah, you know, similar yeah, yeah. thing. Um, uh, you, you talked a lot in the book, and, and we've kind of alluded it in our conversation, about the balancing act that Kurt was trying to do in the band and it, with his punk roots, with the, the desire to go mainstream. Yeah. Um, and that must have been extremely challenging. And you, a couple times you talk about issues in the book. Um, might have been, who, who was the radio person who uh, kind of tricked Kurt into getting on the line with a heavy metal? Uh, oh, radio? Rosie, yeah. Yeah, John... You know, when the when the record was first being released, before Nevermind came out, but when Geffen had a copy of the mixed version of it, that sort of eight-week period of time of, you know, setup, um, you know, it occurred to some of the promotion guys that, you know, maybe there was a metal audience for part of this record. There was There were certain songs where the guitar had that quality to it, and there were certain radio stations that were metal stations. It was like a sub 
rock format, and there was one in L.A. called KNAC, and there was a national one called Z-Rock, and, you know, there was like, you know, there was a separate kind of chart and the tip sheets of the metal stations, and uh, Rosie, who, who has some wonderful stories about Kurt also, yeah, at one point was just too overzealous and pushing metal and put Kurt on a phone with a, some some tip sheet guy uh, who's involved with metal, and, and Kurt just handed him back the phone and like, you know, poor Rosie for the next month, like didn't have access to, to, to the band because you know he was so conscious. Kurt liked certain parts of heavy metal. I mean, he he respected Black Sabbath, that's for sure, um, and and he didn't like the macho lyrics and and imaging and cultural connotations of it. But musically, there were things about it that he really liked. Same with pop, you know, uh, and um, that was the genius of what he did is he used elements of pop and rock and grunge, you know, or punk and metal and somehow made it like one thing that could appeal to all those audiences. But he knew that the metal fans and the punk fans uh, in a lot of high schools, you know, hated each other. And he didn't want to send a signal to his punk fans that he was like kind of betraying them. So he walked a very careful line in how he dealt with the metal world. He like classically... You know, there was this show, um, this guy Ricky Rackman had had on MTV called Headbangers Ball, which, yeah, yeah. which was the metal show. And again, Kurt really cared about MTV because he knew, you know, how many kids watched it. So he agreed to go on Headbangers Ball because he wanted that part of the MTV audience, but he wore a dress. So, <laughs> you know, he, so he could wink at his punk fans saying, I'm not actually falling for this macho stuff, and kind of was sullen and annoying to, to Ricky Rackman, but he still, they played the video on the metal show, you know. So he was very sophisticated about those kind of signals uh, to the different parts of the public. That just reminded me also, too, in the, in the early 90s, they had the show called The Grind with Eric Nice on MTV, and they did a punk show. It's like it was like a dance show. It was like a, like a uh, TV Soul Train, and they actually did a punk show and or like a grunge show and featured Nirvana stuff. It was actually really interesting. I'm sure you can find it on YouTube. I forgot that. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. What would you say uh, it, when you look back on the time, specifically with Nirvana, when you were uh, involved in management? Uh, what do you think your greatest achievement, not the band's, but really the the greatest achievement of Danny Goldberg was, where you could point to that and say that was. I helped that make that happen. That was my idea. I pushed that. What do you think? Or it might have been not even an idea, just keeping them together. What do you think it was? I don't know, man. I, I was always of the school that you're not supposed to say anything is your idea, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, and I really, uh, you know, I, I, I think that the greatest thing was just to connect with certain great artists enough that I was able to get their trust and then get a decent enough job for them that I was able to keep it, you know? Uh, it's about it's it's about who you who you're who, any manager is judged by who they represent, you know. So uh, certainly Bonnie and you know it was a big deal to me and you know you know all the artists that I've worked with you know especially the ones that I stayed with for a while and we had success together. But uh, you know I, I come out of publicity. Uh, I started as a journalist and then was a publicist for years, and so I tend to often view things through the lens of how things will be conveyed through the media, you know. Uh, so that's sort of my craft that I bring to it. Each Some managers start as record producers, some as lawyers, some as record company people, you know. But I don't know, man. I, I just, uh, to me, it's really about uh, connecting with, with the right artists and then trying to do a good enough job for them to hang on, you know. <laughs> 
Mm. Well, you you talk a lot in the book from a publicist's angle. I mean, you could tell because you mentioned early on that you were had a background in, in publicity. And um, there is a lot of the book in which you're talking about the band from that angle and things that they were trying to do. Um, so you could kind of see that. Um, what were some of the things that you were able to do back then from a, we'll call it publicity angle, that in 2019 is no longer there and as you're still managing artists today? Well, um, you know, the, the media is much more fragmented uh, today. Um, you know, there is no equivalent of MTV where you can get national you know, attention to, to the dominant part of the music audience. I mean, Sirius is national, but it's nothing like the impact of MTV. Uh, you know, the uh, news, there's far fewer newspapers uh, that even exist, and of those that exist, far fewer of them have a, a writer who writes about, you know, contemporary music. The New York Times does, but, you know, it used to be every city. There was a woman in Cleveland, Jane Pratt, at the Cleveland Plain Dealer. There was, you know, a guy in Detroit, someone in Philly, you know, all over the country. There were 20 or 30 of these people. Those jobs don't exist anymore. Um, so, so you know, that's a, that's a difference. Um, what's not different is the need to uh, frame a story, to have a good story, because, uh, you know, part of what promotion and publicity people do is be connectors, and they have lunch with people and have relationships so they can get someone on the phone, you know, or convince them to do them a favor every once in a while. But, but the real way is to give them a story that they want. And then it's not a favor. Then you're doing them a favor. So having to, uh, you know, try to work with people to help them frame how they're going to present themselves sometimes is uh, that's not as different. But the, you know, the you have to do 20 interviews today to reach as big an audience as what one interview used to be able to reach. And you do go fairly deep. Your book is a really good historical look at what the record business was like in, we'll call it 1991 to 1994. Uh, a great job, because you do go pretty deep into how MTV was working, how, um, I can't remember the uh, the young executive's name, who was the one who uh, recommended that Smells yeah, Like Amy, Teens. Amy Finnerty, yes, she yes. was 22. She was mm -hmm. the youngest person in the music meeting. And by design, they wanted someone that understood the, the younger culture, and she was the champion of, of uh, you know, Smells Like Teen Spirit, and then her status... <laughs> within the channel skyrocketed exactly and and how uh there were arguments between uh judy mcgrath who was the head of mtv at the time and kurt because he wanted to do rape me and it was at the mtv music awards or is that what it was yeah or? that was yeah. a one-time thing i mean judy in general was a great supporter mm -hmm. of the band and someone i just have enormous respect for but she herself has said this was a mistake god knows i've made a lot worse mistakes but at the 92 music awards so it never mind it been out for you know 10 or 11 months i think it was august of 92 and um and um you know so they played uh you know uh in bloom it smells like teen spirit so many times on different tv shows and including on mtv in the studio as well as the videos and so he had written Rape Me, you know, In Utero hadn't been recorded yet, but he'd written it, and, uh, you know, he wanted to do a new song and debut a new song on the Video Awards, and they got paranoid that it was going to be perceived as uh, advocating rape, even though, you know, anybody who knew Nirvana, Kurt was such a feminist, he hated the macho misogyny so much, and, and it was clearly a anti-rape song, but 
the, just the word rape and just the, the, the shortness of time to vet it through their standards and practices just created a kind of a freak out. And they, uh, you know, they insisted that the band do lithium from Nevermind. And Kurt, you know, was unhappy about it. But after an hour or two, he relented. The whole point of doing the show was to, uh, you know, do a favorite MTV. It was their biggest rated show of the year. And he was conscious of that sort of a thing. So, but he, he, he messed with their head during the live broadcast before doing lithium, he played the first couple of chords of Rave Me <laughs> <laughs> and then switched into lithium just, just to mess with her. You know, it was, uh, you know, and there was Amy describes this moment when one of the techs looked at Judy to see whether or not they should pull the plug and she shook her head <laughs> with her fingers crossed. That scene reminded me of when Elvis Costello was on Saturday Night Live in 70, whatever, 77. Yeah. And yeah. he was not supposed to play whatever song. I think he started doing Alice, and he said, let's stop, let's stop, and he went into the song he was told not to do. Right. I know. I, I was sick of yeah, that. That's one of the classic yeah. rock and roll moments, that, uh, that Elvis performance. And, that's, and that's also the classic performance where Chris threw the bass up in the air. And it hit him in the head. In the oh, head oh yeah, no, at the MTV Awards. Yeah, at the MTV Awards, yeah, not Elvis. Yeah. Not Elvis yeah. Yeah. It hit him on the head. Yeah, hit him on the head. I was standing right there, and it knocked him down. I mean, he wasn't unconscious, but he was quite dazed. Did he just miss it when it did? His, did it get lost in the lights like a fly ball or something? I never wanted to discuss it with him, but <laughs> <laughs> you know, thank God he's okay. But it's funny because you, you talk about the things that a manager does, and everybody looks at the big broad strokes about getting them a label deal or getting them an agent or something. But then there's a little, you know, little a different thing, an off the beaten path thing like that, yeah. where the bass player in the band, you're you're ten feet away from him, and he throws the bass up and it hits him in the head, and he almost gets unconscious. You know, what do you do <laughs> as the manager? You know. Well, luckily somebody got him some ice and he was okay, and it wasn't a concussion or anything. So, uh, I, I I didn't. Uh, it wasn't that big a learning experience, thank God. But it was it was it was a surreal moment, that's for sure. It's funny. Now, um, D Dave died on April fifth, nineteen ninety four, and Kurt, Kurt, Kurt. I'm sorry, Kurt. Oh, wow, Kurt. God, yeah, right. I'm talking about myself. Uh, Kurt died April fifth, nineteen ninety four. The reason I'm saying Dave is uh, Dave Laurie is a, a friend of our program here, yeah. and you worked with Dave uh, at Mercury Records, and um, I know Artemis. he managed Greg Allman, and you Artemis. managed the Almonds, yeah. yeah, and Artemis, you guys right. were there together as well. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, Dave Laurie managed Jeff Buckley, who died just yeah. basically three, month, three years and a month after Kurt Cobain died. Um, yeah. After Buckley died, did, did you reach out to Dave and offer any advice or counsel on how to get through you know, this? Dave says I did. He's so generous about this, mm -hmm. and he's acknowledged it in his book, and he's always said it to me, so I must have done so. <laughs> you know, obviously it was a bigger deal to him who was going through a tragic moment in his life than to me who was just trying to, you know, do the right thing. So I like Dave a lot. He worked with me a couple of times at Artemis and at uh, Mercury, and he's a talented and soulful guy. I, I didn't ever meet Jeff Buckley, I, you know, but, but I know it was very uh, devastating to Dave when, when, when Jeff died. I do remember he was on our show, and he mentioned how after Michael Hutchins uh, accidentally killed himself, uh, after Jeff Buckley, that the manager of Michael Hutchins called Dave and said, what do I do? You know, how do I get through this? Because it was uh, not too long after Jeff Buckley had passed. Mm. So it's, you know, there's a small, you know, camaraderie of, of that's the wrong Apparently, word. Apparently, yeah. I didn't yeah. have anyone to call. I just, <laughs> but it was, uh, it was just one of those, you know, it's a heartbreaking thing. And, uh, 
you know, it's not only heartbreaking for people who work with famous artists, it's heartbreaking for people who work with anybody that dies young, especially self-inflicted, either directly or accidentally. It's, uh, it's a tough one. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned after Kurt died, um, Courtney Love ended up leaving Gold Mountain and going to another... Well, she left Gold Mountain when I went to Atlantic. Oh, that's when it was. Uh, okay. Yeah, because okay. when I went to Atlantic, like I mentioned earlier, you know, I made that arrangement, and that was fine with Kurt, and, and we, we functioned that way. Uh, but Courtney was at a different stage of where Hull was and didn't feel as comfortable uh, for whatever reason, and so she went with uh, Q Prime when I went with, uh, which is Cliff Bernstein and Peter Mensch, the mm-hmm. folks that manage, still manage Metallica as they did then. And so uh, by the time Live Through This came out, they were the manager. But when we made the deal with Geffen for Live Through This, that was my, you know, I made that deal. So, uh, you know, that was just what happened here. We stayed friends, but, uh, you know, uh, it was, um, she just was in a different situation relative to where her career was and what she needed. Nirvana was so big, uh, they were, they had luxury, uh, you know, of doing things in a more unorthodox way. And then Dave Flory also managed Courtney Love for for a short period of time. Yeah, I know. I didn't know that, but I'll take your word for it. <laughs> oh, really? Okay. He said <laughs> it was a very short period of time, and it was during the era. I think she was having some real problems, and he was, I think, the fixer. He called himself at that time. He was managing I, people. I know nothing of this. Yes, yes. Um, <laughs> And, and no, no, seriously, I'm not yeah. being facetious. I, I, I literally don't know anything about it. I, I'm very fond of Courtney, and she was helpful when I was doing the book, but it's not like I've been in touch with her every single year of her life and career. There have been periods where we were out of touch, and that must have been one of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, so l- let me go back just a little bit, because uh, you said you had mentioned, uh, I'm sorry, managed Bonnie. Um, what did they continue with Gold Mountain after you left to go to Atlantic? Uh, the Almonds left uh, before I left. Uh, there, we had a contract with them, uh, and then when the contract was up, they they left. And their longtime tour manager, Bert Holman, took over as manager, and he's continued to manage the Almonds through their last show, which I was lucky enough to be at. I, I did stay in touch with them over the years, and it's an incredible honor to have worked with them for those few years. Uh, Bonnie um, stayed with Ron Stone. Uh, for a while, I don't know exactly when that came apart, but you know, for a while they 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 stayed together again. Once I was at Atlantic, the only artist I really stayed connected to from Gold Mountain was 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 uh, was uh, was Kurt. Okay, I, I had a new job <laughs> that was, you know, by that time, by the time he died, I was president of the company, so I, you know, that was my date, that was my main job. But mm-hmm. I, I never lost that connection with Kurt. Because, uh, again, I was happy to do it, but it also was part of my whole, uh, you know, place in the business was that, you know, I had that relationship. Similar in a way that Irving Azoff, through every job he's had, always kept his relationship with Don Henley, even when he was running MCA. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. We just need nine seconds to give a station ID, then we have just a couple more questions. Is that okay? Yeah. All right, thanks. WPSC, Wayne, New Jersey. On the radio, 88.7 FM. Online, gobrave.org. A tune-in radio station, part of the William Patterson Broadcast Network. And we're back with Danny Goldberg. Tom Hefter, what's your question? So, uh, I noticed the book is named after an in utero song. Yeah. Is there any connection with the lyrics? Just, curi- just well, curious. I mean, Maybe honestly, I'm looking too deep. I just was looking for a good title. And, um, you know, I just thought I would look at song titles. My previous book, uh, which I was about the 60s, I 
ripped off the title of the Moody Blues song In Search of the Lost Chord that was a book about 1967. So I, I just went through titles, and I came on that title, and uh, it just came to me. First of all, I love that album, and I particularly love that song. That's the first track on In Utero. Mm -hmm. It's just one of his best lyrics. It's kind of a John Lennon-ish kind of talking about himself, you know, post-stardom, self-reflection, um, but also an incredible chorus. And, um, you know, I, I thought I could do the play on words of the song is called Serve the Servants. Right. And I just, my title is Serving the Servant, because I, I wanted to put him on a pedestal, you know, and to see him of kind of a servant of a muse that only he could hear, but that he could somehow translate to millions of people. And the idea of a manager is serving, you know, serving the servant. It just seemed to me to describe the romanticized view of what the job could be. Mm. Do you think a manager has to love the music of the band or artist? That no, definitely not. Mm -hmm. Definitely not. No, you can do a very good job for someone whose music you don't like. And, and, and I would say I've certainly been involved as a record executive and as a manager where I didn't have the same kind of personal connection to the music, but I respected it and I respected their relationship with their audience and did a professional job. Absolutely. Uh, you know, you, it's not required. But I think a lot of the more famous relationships, like Landau and Springsteen or Paul McGinnis when he had U2, or when Albert worked with Dylan or Janis Joplin or Peter with Led Zeppelin, or, you know, I would say mentioned Bernstein with Metallica all these years, my friend Mark Spector with John Baez, you know, Harvey with Southside Johnny. These are long, special relationships. Uh, and, and so I'd say there's, a, there's that category. And then there's people who just do a good professional job of providing services. You know, it's not every manager relationship is going to be that deep. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, so um, Kurt dies, you're at Atlantic Records, and then you end up uh, becoming chairman of Warner Brothers Records. Uh, then you're at Mercury Records, uh, you become chairman, you start up Artemis Records, and then... I'm not trying to gloss over any of that as if it's not important. Yeah, I'm, I'm old. I'm old. I guess. <laughs> but it's, it's, it's cool. Um, I was I was actually a pop. Your listeners know this all happened over a period of several decades. Right. <laughs> I didn't change jobs every year. Yeah. yeah. Every six months, he uh, became chairman and president of something new. Um, but then you went back because you had had Gold Mountain Enter uh, Entertainment. You so uh, I think you said Atlantic bought out your half uh, when that yeah. came aboard, and then. In uh, 2010, you started Gold Village Entertainment. Yeah. So um, explain why you went back into artist management. Well, I couldn't figure out how to start another label. I mean, the record business had changed so much, uh, you know, uh, and um, uh, Artemis, uh, you know, went under. I, I miscalculated, like a lot of the big executives did. I didn't see the, uh, the digital uh, revolution uh, coming as quickly as it did. And, you know, for that you know, it, the business has now rebounded the last few years because of streaming services, but for 14 years in a row, the record business was financially deteriorating by double digits. And, uh, you know, I was, uh, I just had lost kind of my place in a way that could, so I, I, you know, label requires an investment of money. Management, just you have to have one client and, you know, they pay you and that pays your rent and you build on that. So I had spent a year out of the business working for an ill-fated but earnest venture called Air America Radio, where, El, you know, Rachel Maddow started and Al Franken had a show. And, and then, um, you know, that went under for, and, and I, um, and Steve Rowe was looking for, called me and he was looking for manager. And I said, well, you know, I'm actually thinking of getting back into management. This thing is going under. And he said, well, if you're in, I'm in. So then I had a client and so then I had a, a company and, and, and I, that's what I've done the last, uh, you know, 10 years or so. 
So what are the, some of the things that you do with an artist like Steve Earle, who's, you know, he's not a pop artist, he's not Ariana Grande, but what are some of the things you're looking at him and you're saying, we have th this, these different revenue streams, we can maximize them, we can do this, we can do that, we can focus on these markets. Can you kind of go through like a, uh, a Danny Goldberg marketing plan or business plan for an artist like Steve Earle? Well, every artist is different. You know, there are categories, though. He's uh, older and has an older audience. So, you know, um, firstly, the touring is, you know, the biggest source of income for, you know, any artists that aren't, you know, having giant pop hits, even for some of them. So he's on the road a lot. He plays a lot of shows. I mean, last year he played over 200 shows. He's never going to do that again. He's We're going to scale it down now, but, but he'll still do 70, I'm sure. Uh, he's also a very successful songwriter. He's had songs in dozens of films, and he's a renaissance guy. He's written a novel and a book of short stories. He's been an actor. He's been in two HBO series, the, you know, the, the Wire and Treme, and he shows up in different films, and he loves theater. He's got a public theater project he's going to be involved with next year. So, you know, it's just um, kind of day-to-day -day trying to figure out uh, how to be useful to him. Uh, putting records out definitely matters. So, you know, we've worked with different labels over the years with them. There's uh, uh, only one of them was on a major label because the guy who was running Warner's really liked him. But in general, he's, he fits better in an indie label. He's back on New West Records now. And, um, you know, just the day-to-day -day issues that come up. I, you know, again, I... I always dubious of people who try to explain marketing plans it's it's usually you know more kind of hundreds of pieces of a mosaic that hopefully over the course of some intelligent and choices and hard work make a pattern that is more successful than it would otherwise be but there's no magic phrases I can think of. You know, it's just he's a media-friendly guy, very articulate, so the press is a core for him. It's like one year it's the New York Times and one year it's Rolling Stone and you know, he's he always uh, gets a disproportionate. He's someone whose career is uh, England, Australia, Canada, Holland, France, as well as the, the U.S. So balancing out the international stuff is, is part of it. And uh, just trying to create structures to accommodate his creative spirit because he's, again, he's a Renaissance guy who has different things he wants to do at different times. But still, we have to plan a cycle for him where he makes enough money to keep, you know, paying his bills. And I guess, if, is he going out with a full band when he's going overseas? He's out now as if he, with a full band. You know, he just released a record called Guy. One of his mentors was a Texas singer-songwriter named Guy Clark, who passed away about a year ago. So this is a tribute record to Guy Clark. He, seven or eight years ago, he had done one for his other mentor, Towns Van Zandt, It was called Towns. So this is kind of the bookend to that. So he'll be touring through September with the band, which he calls the Dukes. And then, uh, you know, then for the rest of the year, he'll do some weekends acoustically. You know, he plays sometimes acoustically. He's a very good acoustic artist. But when an album first comes out, he likes to, he, you know, he likes to go out with the people that were on the album, which in this case is his band. Mm. Okay. Well, I think, I believe that we're done with our third degree of Danny Goldberg. Do you yes. have anything you want, uh, you want us to ask you, Danny? No, I'm so uh, appreciate being on your show, though, guys. It, 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 it really means a lot to me. You know, a lot of these interviews are with people that are kind of just reading the book jacket, and you're right. such music freaks. It's just a whole other <laughs> level of discourse. <laughs> I really appreciate it. That, that's great. That's how, great. Many, how many interviews have you had to do around this book? Or well, as many. First of all, I'm doing anything anyone asks me to do. It's, a, it's what we want to do is promote the book. But, mm -hmm. you know, it's, uh, it's, it's got to be 50, 100. I mean, because it's out... Because of Kurt's international posture, 
in the cultures of all these countries, there's like a German edition, the Spanish edition, Italian edition, the French edition, the Russian edition, uh, you know, 12 different languages. So I've done phoners in a lot of other countries and, you know, probably a few dozen here. And I'm look, I every one of them I say yes to as long as I can fit into my schedule. That's how you get people to know about a book and hopefully sell some. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, some are more fun than others. This one's been more fun. Well, thank you. Yes. It's a great book. It, it's Thank an you. excellent, and yeah, I, so. I sent you an email. I, I, yeah, I, I saw that. Thanks. I really appreciate that. Nice to read that before doing the interview. Yeah, ah, and, and I wasn't trying to kiss your fanny because it's real. As I was reading it, I was thinking this just totally hits that era, that nineteen ninety ish to nineteen ninety four era. Because I was working at Polygram at the time, and right. I'm a, you know a music freak, and I was at Tower Records the first time I heard actually a Pearl Jam, and I I knew of them but hadn't heard. Any of them, and and obviously uh, Nirvana was huge, and this was that other band coming from out there, you know. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. It, it was just uh, you, you nailed it. So excellent job. Thanks. So, yeah. All right, Danny Goldberg. Danny Goldberg. Yes, yes, yes. Goldberg. yes. Thank you so much. Okay. <laughs> well, <laughs> you hung up. That's excellent funny. way to end a season. Yes, excellent way. A better way would have been. Uh, no. What uh, you just we just talked to a legend. What, uh, <laughs> yeah. what better way do we have? <laughs> All right. Michael Jackson hologram. <laughs> I, I, actually we could have done the whole show as a hologram. Yes. And I think that would play great on oh, radio. Yeah. And I think you scoff at that Tom Hefter of Ticketmaster. But I think that's the next big thing for academic year 2019-2020 at the University of William Patterson. Well, hologram? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. That's right. Uh, Keep keep listening to Brave New Radio yes. all summer long. I was telling Ashley, our German engineer, uh, that I was actually um, uh, shazamming some tracks this morning because I listened to the station during It Plays My Kind of Music. And uh, they were playing some great stuff this morning. So listen. And then our show continues all through the summer, 8 p.m. on Wednesdays. And yep. we're going to have the Nashville sessions, the Music Viz at Music Viz in Nashville all summer long. Next week, we're going to have Todd Shefflin of TikTok, uh, and technically his company is ByteDance, a Chinese company, and uh, we're going to talk about that. Why do you Why do you make a... Ashley winced when I said ByteDance, B-Y-T-E. <laughs> because the one... The, so the brand they put out is like TikTok, right? That's right. the app they put out. And then the name is ByteDance, and I just... Doesn't sound real to me. It is the number one downloaded app, though, right now. Right now, it, it yeah. It's huge. Yeah. yeah. Massive. And Todd's really, it's a really interesting interview because we talk about, he's the guy who um, puts together deals between the labels and TikTok. Uh, who, who, you know, how much TikTok is going to pay for the master rights. Uh, he's just dealing with uh, master recordings, master rights to um, their tracks that are available on TikTok for people to put up there. So it's very interesting. And he gives actually a one-on-one on how to use TikTok because he had mentioned that he was as a, uh, Danny Goldberg was talking about how he was the, the old suit and they wanted to have some younger people around. Um, he's talking to some labels and they don't have that younger person around who necessarily understands how TikTok works, mm. which is interesting. So he gave us a, a, a TikTok 101 mm. during that interview. So listen to that and keep listening all summer long to SoundCloud, Spotify, and uh, iTunes. And you'll hear a podcast. Uh, we have a bunch of podcasts that we haven't put up yet that are going to be out. And then we're going to have all these all summer long. So it's going to be a great summer. We're all going to get tanned and burned. And we're going to come back in September loving life. Right, Dr. Esteban Marconi? Colorless. 
Dr. Esteban has been wearing a collar because he had a surgical implant put into his neck. Um, right. He kept running off in the middle of the night. Nobody could find him. So, allegedly, this will be right. uh, the friend finder on iPhone. This, he's got one of those in his neck Invisible now. fence around my house. We're going to do that. And he'll continue to bark, but he won't be able to get out. <laughs> so, Tom Hefter, thank you for being with yes, us. Oh, thank you, Tom. Weeks. Tom Hefter! Thank you, guys. Tom Hefter! Yes. Yes, guys, thank you. This was amazing. It really was. Yes. It really was. Ashley Weltner, thank you for spending another yes. year with us. Ashley Weltner! Dr. Esteban Marconi. Thank you very much. Putting the Esteban in Marconi. And my co-host that does most of the talking, David Kirkfield. <laughs> it would be me. It could That's be I. Right. We'll ask the English teacher how. But we want to apologize also. Danny said a bad word at one point. So we yes, apologize for the bad word. We apologize to the FCC and Dr. Esteban. We'll write a, write a letter. Sternly worded letter with that word to the FCC. Apology. Everybody for listening. Thank you for the tweets that came during the school year. Thank you to Danny Goldberg for being on. Thank everybody. And all else. the guests. Every guest we've ever had in the history and all the future guests. we're going Because our right. show is a big deal now. We get some pretty major guests now. Uh -huh. So uh, thank you for listening. Keep listening. We love you. And at the end of every show, we do not say hello. How silly would that be, Tom Hefter, Ticketmaster? By the way, silly. you should introduce yourself. Just go, hi, I'm Tom Hefter, <laughs> Ticketmaster. <laughs> go to your wife. Go to Lily when you get home tonight. And just say, hi, I'm Tom Hefter, Ticketmaster. Right. I'm going to do that. <laughs> I'm going to start doing that. Hi, I'm Tom Hefter, Ticketmaster. <laughs> but Tom Hefter, Ticketmaster, at the end of every show, we don't say hello. You know what we say? Say adios. We say adios!